This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In the 1880, the feisty, famous, or infamous feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote, When in the early part of the 19th century, women began to present to protest against their civil and political degradations, they were referred to the Bible for an answer. And when they protested against their unequal position in the church, they were referred to, to the Bible for an answer. And so Stanton decided to turn to the Bible for answers. And with cohorts of 26 women, she began to study, they studied the Bible and produced the Women's Bible of 1898. In the Women's Bible, Stanton and company excoriated the Bible for excluding women uh, from a key position and for discriminating against women in religious and political and social ways. But they also used the Bible to fight against discrimination in their own time, showing how the Bible, in fact, supports some things that were not acceptable in 19th century America. What they found in the Bible is what we find in the Bible. The Bible is a mixed bag. It uh, has uh, a whole variety of positions on virtually every topic. And I'm sure everyone in this room has texts that he or she finds absolutely offensive and irritating and other texts that you might find inspiring and illuminating and and empowering. Uh, Some texts disenfranchise women, ignore women, but other texts grant women opportunity, authority that surpassed that what was given to women in the 19th century. So we're going to look at some of this. When I say, oh, there she is. When I say, and there is one of the things she said. Now tonight when I say Bible, I mean uh, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, Torah Nevim, Ketuvim, uh, what Christians call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible or Jewish scripture. Much of what I say does not apply in the same way to the New Testament or the Christian Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. As you know, the Bible is not a book. It's a library. Parts of it were written a hundred centuries apart by people living sometimes a thousand miles apart. So it's a, a very large uh, collection of perspectives. It comes from worlds that are different from ours, and um, it represents diversity on literally every topic. And this applies as well to the representations of women. 
<clears throat> Excuse me, I've been traveling too much and I have this thing you pick up on plane. Uh, I call it kennel, um, kennel cough. You know, dogs get it when they are cooped up. <clears throat> I'm not contagious and I'm not suffering and I won't make you suffer, but I am. Okay. Uh, now, some biblical, what they find, what we find, is that some biblical teachings seriously limit women's roles and put them in positions of dependence with liabilities that don't meet, meet what we expect for women in our time. At the same time, however, there are, po- there are places in the Bible where we find women in positions and power that outstrips what we can count on today. We find in the Bible that women hold any position in the society except a priesthood. There are women, there are queens as well as kings, there are male and female sages, male and female prophets, and more. There's at least one woman for every position except the uh, priesthood. Um, And more than 90% of the men also couldn't be a priest because priests could only be members of this one family. And so um, we have to weigh the advantage and disadvantage. I must have, excuse me, I may have uh, something for that. But women clearly participate in worship alongside men in the Bible, but they don't officially officiate. In some cases, there's only one woman per job, but what it does is show unambiguously that the woman was entitled to hold any one of those positions, even if we only have one of them. Now, some women have more than one position, Um, take, uh, for example, the prophetess uh, Deborah. Deborah holds more power and authority than her male uh, counterpart in similar roles. She's a prophet, uh, she is a military leader, she is a judge, a combination that makes her three times more qualified than any of the leaders before her or after her. Now, we might say, well, she's a precursor to the modern woman who has to have three degrees or hold three jobs in order to get one salary. But I don't think that's what the Bible was doing. I think the Bible was trying to show that she was exceptionally um, qualified and competent, and they celebrate her uh, gifts. Now, what I want to do this evening, I will talk for a while and then open it to a Q&A. I will survey some of the scenes in the biblical landscape so as to illustrate the complexity of the subject. And then at the end, I will pretty much leave you in the lurch because what I'm going to argue is that the Bible is more of a Rorschach text than uh, about the past and the present than many of us assume. That doesn't mean anything goes, but still there's room for interpretation. 
and therefore, and therefore it demands that we take responsibility for how we interpret the Bible. So my goal is to show you how and why I say this. But I have another goal. Uh, I want in addition, or I hope in addition, that you'll come away with an appreciation of how and why knowing the Bible matters, matters to you in religious circles, in political circles, and beyond. 21st century feminist responses to the Bible come in a whole variety of forms. The founding document in the 20th century was the essay by Phyllis Tribble, Depatriarchalizing in Biblical Interpretation, 1973. Tribble poses the dilemma that she faced. Do I have to choose between the sisterhood and the Bible? Is it one or the other? And her answer is, no, I don't have to choose. What she goes on to show in this essay is that much that was objectionable, objectionable and is objectionable to feminists is in fact not part of the Bible itself, but part of the interpretation of later generations. And that applies to many of the misogynistic and patriarchal interpretations. And what she tried to do is strip the Bible of some of those interpretations and highlight a more nuanced Bible, more uh, user-friendly for feminist agenda. Now, Tribble does not claim that this is always the case. She acknowledges that some texts, many texts, definitely pose a problem. And therefore, she wrote this book, Texts of Terror, in which she looks at texts that exhibit violence against women and tries to find a way to address them from a feminist perspective. Um, I was going um, to go through some of the other methods that follow her footsteps, but I will leave that later, uh, perhaps to the Q&A, because I want to um, have us look at texts first. Um, but let me say this. The spectrum of feminist approaches to the Bible extend from those who totally uh, dismisses it and reject it as inimical to women, to those who say there's nothing better for women than the Bible, and everything in between. And there are different perspectives and strategies that readers have brought to the Bible. One of them, and the only one I want to touch on now, is the increased interest in learning about women's lives in antiquity. Archaeology and social sciences are now used to really learn about what ordinary people did. Uh, most of archaeology for a very long time was only interested in uh, major headline figures. Let's find David, let's find the temple, let's find the palace. But now the focus is on uh, ordinary men and women, and there's much that's coming out about the lives of women. 
And I want to share with you one of my very favorite uh, um, works that deals with uh, uh, women in the past. We have marriage contracts from the 5th century BCE. They're 2,600 years old. We actually have the documents. They come from a small community, a Jewish community in Egypt, and they are some 700 years before the rabbis write up the kind of marriage laws that define traditional Judaism. What's interesting in these marriage contracts is that they all include a divorce clause. So the marriage contract already says, here, and, and what's beautiful about it for women is it lists what the woman brings. So we know what they wore, they know what their house looked like, we know where they lived. We know a lot about these women. But um, how many of you know about this? Anyone? You know, very few. Oh, good. You're in for a surprise. So in the contract between Anani and Tapmut, it says, if tomorrow or another day Anani rises up in a community and says, I divorced Tapmut, my wife, the divorce money is on his head. There's a fixed amount that he has to pay. It's the same in all of the marriage contracts. We have about seven now. There may be more. The work is still being done. That's what this marriage document looks like. It's quite legible. I, I know it doesn't look that way, but it's, it's in Aramaic. It's very clear Aramaic if you know Hebrew and you take a half hour and a, and a sort of a thing with the letters, you can read it. It's very close to Hebrew. But here is a surprise. If tomorrow or another day Tapmut rises and up and says, I divorce my husband Anani, a like sum shall be on her head. A no-fault divorce initiated by either spouse. 2,600 years ago, uh, a Jewish, the Jewish custom from the Jews who live in Egypt. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, now, where am I in all of this, and what am I going to uh, try to illustrate to you? Here is where I'm coming from. The Bible is an androcentric document. That is, it is male-centered. Men wrote it down, men transmitted it, men canonized it, and it represents their reflection on issues and histories that mattered to them. The Bible did not invent patriarchy. It responds to it. Patriarchy pre-exists the Bible, exists in places, existed and exists in places that never saw the Bible. It's been around for a very, very long time. But the Bible responds to it. And so we have to understand and ask ourselves, what is the Bible doing with what we think of as patriarchy? And uh, we're going to uh, look at that. How am I doing on time? Okay. Um, 
I'll give you an example. There's no more patriarchal books than the book of Genesis, right? It's about the patriarchs. But when you look at Genesis, uh, you see something very interesting about these patriarchal families. Um, yes, the, the men are the ones who talk to God most of their time. They are held responsible for decisions. But anything important happens because the women are controlling what's going to happen. The important thing for Genesis is blessings, covenant, and progeny. Who regulates that? Well, Sarah, not Abraham, decides who is going to stay home and inherit. Rebecca, not Isaac, decides who is going to be blessed and carry the covenant. And as for Jacob, his wives choreograph his sex life. So all the children are determined by the mothers who are bringing uh, themselves and orchestrating their relationship uh, with him. So um, he. Um, so in some ways, the uh, we can say. The, Genesis is making fun of patriarchy. On the one hand, it's upholding it as authority. Men have the authority, but on the other hand, that authority gets subverted and directed and managed by the women in their family. It reminds me of a joke. You all know that of the man who says, in my house, I make all the big decisions. I decide what the president ought to do, and my wife, she decides every, all the little things, everything else, where we live, what about the children, that's, ah, that's hers. You get the point, Genesis does that, and it deflates the concept of patriarchy, showing that when it, the men may have authority, but the women are the ones who have power, and they use it. Um, but there are many biblical texts that very clearly telegraph messages about, negative messages about women. The Ten Commandments uh, uh, address men only uh, as if women were irrelevant except uh, as a problem when a man uh, uh, is attracted to another man's wife. That's the only time that women really appear. There are some texts that are really abusive of women. The prophet Ezekiel, for example, uses female metaphors to castigate the nation and accuse it of being a whore and piles up all the sins upon the nation construed as a female persona and offers a graphic, horrific, abusive um, attacks on this female persona that is the nation. Now, he's not talking about real women, but the feminization of Israel's sin feeds the stereotype of women as uh, themselves sexually promiscuous and deserving retaliation by a male figure. That's what's being fed by metaphors such as this. And yet, the Bible is really short about promiscuous or sexual, prom sexually promiscuous women. There aren't many of them in the Bible when you read about it. Uh, you have a few prostitutes. Um, two of them come to 
Solomon, but what's striking is how respectful the Bible is towards these prostitutes. Uh, you may remember the story, two prostitutes come to Solomon with the baby. Uh, it says, it's my baby, and he wisely solves the situation after listening to them um, thoughtfully and respectfully. And then he solves the situation by honoring the motherly impulse of one of the women. As you remember, he says, just divide the baby into two. One of the women says, no, 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 give it to her, to the other one. And he says, ah, that one is the real mother, so give her the baby. She cares more about the child than about uh, fairness, abstract fairness. Another interesting and important story about prostitute that is quite uh, surprising is the story of Rahab or Rahab. She's both a prostitute and a Canaanite, a foreigner. And you may remember the story. She is in Jericho. She hides the spy spies who come to scout the land in order to decide whether the Israelite can actually move forward and enter the promised land. And she hides the spies, lowers them to safety from the window, and uh, gets them to promise that her family will be spared. Now, to appreciate what she does and how the Bible portrays her, um, we have to remember that 40 years before, other spies came to the land, and they went back with a report that so disheartened the nation that they were too discouraged to go forward and take possession of the land. And God was so enraged that God doomed the generation to die in the wilderness. And that's why they wandered for 40 years. So we know how important this scouting mission is. And what the Bible does is show us in no uh, um, unambiguous, in, in no, with no ambiguity, how Rahab is the one who inspires these spies who encourages them so they can go back and give a, an enthusiastic message about their prospect in the land. So it's this prostitute who really holds a pivotal role in Israel's coming to the land. And as I said, she's not only a prostitute, but also a, a foreigner. But the Bible celebrates her and highlights her significance. She's a rescuer, and most of the women in the Bible, I'm speaking about the Hebrew Bible, most of the women who show up are rescuers, and they come in all shapes and sizes and situations. Now, with Passover coming, I have to say a few words about the Exodus. Passover is about the liberation of the Hebrew slaves from Egypt. The Exodus story is the most essential and persistent story of the whole Bible. It is the core of Israel's identity and traditions. 
Who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? God. Who led the Israelites out of Egypt? Don't all speak at once. <laughs> Moses. If you said Moses, you get 33.3% credit, percent credit. There are others that the Bible honors. So let's see what God says. This was a trick uh, question. Here's what the prophet Micah says in God's name. Oh, my people, what have I done to you, and what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So in the 8th century, she's remembered as one of the three leaders. Uh, you have that on your handout, by the way, but I will uh, talk about that uh, using the board. The Exodus does not begin with Moses. It begins with the women. The Bible makes it very clear that the liberation from Egypt was only possible to, due to the courage and, uh, and audacity of the women. They were the only ones who dared to stand up to the tyrant of their time. Fortunately, these days, I can assume most of you know about the women of the Exodus, and I don't have to go into it in great detail, but... I want to highlight a couple of things. First, there were the midwives who stood up and, uh, against the genocidal pharaoh. Then there was a young girl whom we call Miriam, who had courage, smarts, and chutzpah. Some of you heard me talk about her a year ago, but I can't not repeat couple of points that have to be highlighted at this time. Most of you know the story how Yocheved, the mother of the baby, put him in a little basket, put him on the river to let him float, and then his sister appears out of nowhere. And that's the verse I want us to look at. Pharaoh had determined that all the boys should be killed, but if it's a daughter, let the daughter live. Uh, so we have a story about daughters, and these daughters are going to be who starts the exodus. The most important one is the sister. She shows up suddenly this way. That's what we learn about her. Her sister stationed herself at the Tatseb. She made herself as a sentry at the distance to see what will be done to him. This is an extraordinary moment. Why? Because no one seems to have told her to do this. Everyone else has given up. The mother and father have disappeared from the scene. The rest of the Israelites are too much in despair because they live under a tyrant who wants to destroy a people because they're immigrants and he thinks they're a danger. So he wants to um, um, kill them all, get rid of them. But this girl 
living in a world where the death engines have been constructed by a state to destroy the human spirit and to deal people with dispo- as if they were disposable. This girl did not lose her human humanity. Her spirit remained there. She was able to stand there to take responsibility for someone who was more vulnerable than herself. And when she does that, this is when liberation begins. This is when we see the, the capacity of the spirit to overcome the pressures of destruction and undermine the cycle of death that Pharaoh initiated. It's a nice picture. I shouldn't deprive you. Uh, But she doesn't only do that. She jumps in there. And when Pharaoh's daughter opens up the basket and says, oh, it must be a Hebrew, the sister says to her, shall I go and get you for you? a Hebrew nurse to suckle that child for you. We don't know if what Pharaoh's daughter would have done. She would have said, oh, nice baby. Somebody said to me she could have just tipped the basket. After all, her father condemned all the babies to death. But Miriam zooms in and says, hey, you can have this baby. And so three women, a slave woman, a slave woman, a slave girl, and a princess collaborate against the power of the uh, pharaoh, undermine everything he put into place, and give us the first non-violent uh, resistance to evil that's recorded in any of the sources we have. So this is when the, where the exodus begins, And the Bible makes it very, very clear. It begins with the women. Moses is the product, and all the rest is history. So, oh, a year ago, the Women's March fell on the same week that this part of the Torah was read. So that story of of the Exodus, uh, Exodus 2, was what was read in the synagogue on the day of the march was a nice, appropriate thing. Forgive my politics, Um, but there it is. Okay, these are famous women. There are other women who are not as famous as Miriam or as Pharaoh's daughter. And by the way, those women collaborate across class line, religion, ethnicity, to work together. You know, pretty powerful moment in history and to overcome the, the evils that they perceive. There are other important women who accomplish great things that are less famous than uh, Miriam. How many of you are familiar with Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, or Danton Abbey? Anyone knows it? Raise your hand. Yeah, you know it. Okay, so you all know the story revolves around the fact that there are only daughters in the family, and daughters cannot inherit in England uh, in the 18th and 19th century, and uh, for uh, in some situation also in the 20th century. Well, the Bible took care of that. 
some 3,000 years ago. It tells us a story about five daughters who made sure that women would be able to inherit. And here are these five names, Mahla, Chogla, Tirza, Noah, and Milka. Their story appears three times, different stages of it. They have no brother, their father died, and so all, they go before the Supreme Court of their time, and they say, our father died in the wilderness, he left no son. Why should the name of our father be lost from his clan because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So God, and so Moses didn't know what to do about it, so he sends it upstairs, brings their case. The Hebrew word is mishpatan, their mishpat, their law case, uh, before God. And then God says, yep, the daughters of Tzlofchad are right. What they are saying gives them the land to possess. God says, the Hebrew, if you know Hebrew, you'll appreciate it. God says, ken not Tzlofchad dovrot. God says, ken. Ken in Hebrew means yes. Yes. Now, they're right. Gives them the land. But then God goes on to say, let that be a law for all generation. If a man has no sons, his daughters should inherit. If he has no daughters down the law, all the way through all generation. So what they did is not only for their own benefit, but they, they made a law. They made that law. God approved it. Moses carried it out, but the law came from the women. This is the only place in the Bible, in the Torah, the five books, where law emerges from bottom up. All the other laws come from God or Moses. But here we have a law that comes from the people themselves that God ratifies, and those people are five sisters. We have 25 Ostraka clay tablets that have their names from the 19th century. So um, this one is Hogla and this one is Noah. These are like cash receipts uh, for probably wine. This is, uh, Ostraka are the sticky notes of the ancient world. They, uh, they are used to, to write on. So this is exciting to know about them. But here's the law. It should be for all the Israelites uh, as God, as Adonai commanded Moses. God is now carrying out the decision that was made by the women. Here's another story that I love. Uh, another story you're not likely to know. It's about, it's a woman in war. Uh, King David sends his chief general to capture a traitor. The traitor hides in the town of Abel of Bet Macha. And so uh, Joab, King David's right hand man, uh, oh, I see some things are cut off. Okay. Uh, puts a siege and is about to destroy the town. Okay. They're under siege. An unnamed woman shows up, shouts from the city. 
listen, listen, tell Joab to come over here so I can talk to you. Tell him, come over here so I can talk to you. So he comes. Now, you have to know Joab. He takes no orders from any, he takes orders from no one. Even David has a hard time telling him what to do. And here's this woman saying, get yourself over here, so I, I want to talk to you. So he comes. And she says, are you Joab? And he said, I am. And she said, listen to what your handmaid has to say to you. And he says, I'm listening. She said, I'm the one of those who seek the welfare of the faithful of Israel, but you seek to bring death upon a mother city in Israel. And Joab replied, far be it from me, far be it from me to destroy and to ruin. It's backpedaling. You know, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And then she goes on and says to him, so what is it you're after? She negotiates. She said, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do, she says. He says, okay. She goes back to the town. She tells the townspeople, this is what we're going to do. They do it. The city is spared. The point is, here is an unnamed woman who intervenes, stands up, in the midst of war and stops this man in his track from destroying her city and gets him to respect her authority, as do the townspeople. But my favorite of all favorites is a woman that most of you never heard of. And I'm on a mission to make sure everybody knows about her. Her name is Hulda. Who is Hulda? How many of you know this name, Hulda? Some do. Okay, good. So I have lots of new, new people. I have a t-shirt that says, ask me about Hulda. Uh, I should have brought it. Uh, the year is 622 before the common era. Good King Josiah is on the throne. They find a book. And they call, we read in Second Kings, they find Sefer Torah. They find the book of the Torah. And it says some things that they've never seen before and never heard of. And it also says if you don't do all of these things, God will bring disaster upon you. The king uh, tears his hair out, but before despairing, he says to his uh, chief folks uh, go inquire of Adonai on my behalf. Go ask God about this because I need to know if this book is the word of God. Maybe it's just a fake, you know, fake news. Um, so they go. The whole delegation of his deep, top people go. All of these big shots go. Where do they go? They go to the prophetess Hulda. And she tells them basically, yeah, this book is the word of God. Thus uh, says the Lord, tell the man, blah, blah, blah. They go back, tell the king, yes, she authenticated the book. The, the king implements the book with no hesitation, not saying, well, maybe she's wrong. No, no, no. He initiates reforms. They are called the reforms of Josiah initiated by her authentication of the, um, of the book. Um, we know what the book is. 
It's a book of Deuteronomy. We know that because the reforms that follow are mandated only in the book of Deuteronomy. What does it mean? It means that we only have the book of Deuteronomy in the Torah itself because Hulda said so. She is the one who authenticated it as God's word, and now all observant, you know, Jews and Christians read this faithfully as God's words, based solely on her uh, approval or her imprimatur. I don't believe there is another woman in Jewish history who has had that kind of authority, except uh, maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg today uh, may have that. But it's quite extraordinary. And what's really important to remember is the Bible doesn't fuss about it. She says it is, and the king uh, does it. Do I have a moment to tell you some story about it? Yes. The rabbis were very unhappy. Why did they go to Hulda? Somebody said there were no other prophets, so what could you do? So they went to a woman, but there were other prophets. Jeremiah is, the sa- is at the same time. So somebody says, well, may- maybe Hulda is a man, like Jonah or Leslie can be a he or a she. It looks like a woman's name. Maybe she was a man. But no, she's a married woman. She's the wife of Shalom. Ah, said somebody, maybe her husband is a prophet and she's Mrs. Prophet. <laughs> but no, and I want you to see what he does. Look at it. He's the keeper of the wardrobe. It's the king's wardrobe. They're a gender-bending couple. She's out there telling the king what to do, and she's, he's inside telling the king what to wear. <laughs> nice, nice turn of event. Okay, there are wicked women in the Bible, and this brings me to something that I think is crucial to address from feminist perspective. Who is remembered? How and why? We don't remember Hulda. Most people don't remember Machla Chogla Noa Milka and Chogla Milka and Noah. But everybody remembers Jezebel. Right? You all heard of Jezebel. We remember certain... Oh, this is a Hulda Gate in Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, it's on the south side of the... Uh, the western wall would be here, and you, if you go around it, Hulda Gate. Uh, and most people who go there still don't know who Hulda is. Everyone remembers Jezebel. Uh, she's the most wicked woman in the Bible, and she's a queen and a foreigner. What's interesting about Jezebel is her crime in the Bible, the crime for which... Um, she is condemned to death by the prophet Elijah. The crime is murder. She frames an innocent man so her husband can inherit his property. So that's the crime. It's murder. Very much like David's crime, who uh, 
uh, frames or, or gets a riot to be killed so he can have the uh, bacheva in a legal manner. What's interesting about Jezebel, and this is not the best photo, but it communicates it, She's, she becomes the byword for the promiscuous woman, sexually promiscuous woman. But her crime has nothing to do with pros, uh, promiscuity. It is murder. It's a very different thing. But she becomes remembered. She gets sexualized. And the memory of her is, um, is um, taken uh, in a different direction from the Bible. Or um, let's take the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, I assume most people know the story. Bathsheba was bathing, and King David saw her and desired her. How was it that David saw her bathing? How many of you heard that she was on the roof when she bathed? Yeah, a fair amount of you heard that. That's the usual story. She was on the roof, and that's how he saw her. No. He was on the roof. We don't know where she was. He was a peeping Tom. He, was, he wasn't supposed to be there. This was the time of year when kings go to do battle. David sent Joab, his right-hand man, but David remained in Jerusalem. So he was on the roof, and he saw her. But she's remembered as the one who in some ways positioned herself on the roof. Why would she bathe on the roof if not to be seen? And that's how she remem is remembered. All the, in modern culture, all the uh, movies that deal with Bathsheba show her as the seductress. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that David and David alone is guilty. The prophet who confronts him compares Bathsheba to the lamb that, that David took and slaughtered for his own convenience. She has done nothing. He is the guilty party. But here is a really good movie. It's actually a very good movie in many, many ways. But we learn that she was bathing bathing in the hope where he could see her deliberately so that he would be attracted to her because she wanted to be the one woman who pleased him. Uh, this terrible film, this, <laughs> this film is beyond bad that Richard Geary survived this film. Uh, means he has more talent than you imagine from this film. Uh, same thing, she deliberately seduces him, and she orchestrates her husband's death. Uh, so the sexualizing of her is what's happening in the text, but it's not in the Bible. So that brings me to the story that I think is one of the most challenging and interesting story in the Bible, the story of the first woman. Now, there's a um, tendency everywhere to misinterpret the Bible, to place blame on women um, in Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba and elsewhere, but the one I want us to look at together is uh, Eve. 
how many of you heard that according to the Bible, uh, mortality, mortality <coughs> uh, happened because Eve ate the forbidden fruit? And had she not eaten, we would still all be in paradise or Gan Eden. How many of you heard it? That if she hadn't eaten, we would have eternal life. We would live in the Garden of Eden. So, let's look at it. I'm going to ask you to par- pair up with someone next to you and look at the text. You have a question. We'll do Chevota. You're going to look at the side that has Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But before you look at it together, <coughs> let me highlight God's first response when the man says, I heard your voice, I hid because I was naked. God says, who told you? Masculine, singular, not who told you all, just you, man, uh, that you were naked. Have you, masculine, singular, eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, so God's first response to the violation is, point a finger at the man, okay? I commanded you, did you eat from that? And then we, uh, they confess that they ate, and God turns to them with consequences. So under B in your handout, you have three questions. Uh, what does God accuse the man of? What is the charge? Why does God decree mortality? Up decrees. This shouldn't be there. Why does God decree? I do know English. Uh, mortality. That is, on what basis? What's the reason for your dust and to dust you shall return? So read it and talk to the person next to you. Okay, so what's the charge? Does God accuse the man of something? Yes. What's the charge? What? Listening to the voice, right? Listening to the voice, uh, um, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and what else? You've eaten of the uh, uh, tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So there are two things. You listened to your wife, you didn't listen to me. In other words, you disobeyed the command that I gave you. Okay. Why is mortality? That's why. You will be your dust and you shall return because you listened to your wife and violated my command. Very, very clear what is done. Now, you might draw out of that that listening to your wife's voice is uh, a sin, uh, but... uh, We know that the Bible doesn't see it this way. A few chapters later, God tells Abraham, listen to, uh, uh, in all that Sarah has said to you, this is a little flowery, listen to her voice, hearken unto her voice. So there's nothing fundamentally wrong about listening to a voice. The problem is that this man listened to the voice this time instead of listening to God. That's the charge.
Now, how does the man respond to it? Uh, well, it's on your handout, uh, the last part. Um, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So he recognizes her precisely at this moment as the mother of all living. Exile comes about, same thing. God says, behold, the man has become like one of us, and God sent him forth from the garden. So we know what the transgression of the man is. Now, what does God accuse the woman of? Oh, I didn't put that on the board. Uh, okay, it's on your handout. Uh, to the woman he said, and that's really important, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. If we have time, I will show you how wrong this translation is. But that's not my point now. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What is the accusation against the woman in the Bible, in Genesis? You can look. You won't find it. There isn't one. God accuses her of nothing. There is no charge. God accuses the man and only the man of violating God's command. God tells only the man, because of what you did, humans die. God accuses the woman of nothing. There are consequences, but, uh, uh, and we can talk about them later, but there is no accusation yet for thousands of years Everyone blames the woman. God doesn't blame the woman. The Bible doesn't blame the woman. But we have been blaming her. So this is the point where you just look at the text and you see how things have been superimposed on it. And this is why I think asking the question, why? Why misinterpretations creep into this material? And it gets even... Uh, more, uh, you know, here is Michelangelo making the serpent itself into a woman. So this tendency uh, to impose misogyny on the Bible when it doesn't have it, it has misogyny. But the more influential texts have been those that uh, were imposed on it. So what's my point to conclude? Three things. The, uh, first, the messages about gender in the Bible are mixed. Second, although the Bible has materials that disadvantages women, most of the women in the Bible are cast as vital to creating a strong nation and celebrated for their strengths, um, resourcefulness and contributions in ways that can empower uh, women uh, today. I only touched on a few examples. Third, I wanted to highlight tendencies to misinterpret biblical text to women's detriment. Biblical texts are often open to different interpretation. This doesn't mean anything goes. Some interpretations are wrong. But in many cases, we have a choice. And I think until we understand why the choices that were made why 
the Bible was chosen to be interpreted in ways that um, debase or devalue women, until we understand why that happened, we are not in a position to adequately deal with gender issues. Until we understand why misreadings um, get the uh, press that they don't deserve, until we understand why they keep cropping up, uh, when other options are as suited or better suited, uh, we will not be well equipped to uproot misogyny uh, or even contain it. Blaming the Bible will not get us very far. It can be used in more than one way. And that puts the responsibility on the readers, on the communities of interpreters. So I hope what I say leads you to, to uh, appreciating the need uh, for all of us to take responsibility for how we interpret the Bible. I hope that uh, you can see why it's important that you get to know the Bible well in the battle for a more equitable uh, society because it's being used in so many ways that may uh, not be fair. The last word, today is the International Women's Day. Since the first woman was celebrated as the mother of all living, M. Kolchai, let me end by inviting you to salute with me all of her, all of those who followed that M. Kolchai. And the best word to salute her is to say, Lechaim. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.